Welcome to the ninth installment of the Phenotype Speaker Series. If you're new to the webinar series, welcome. We're happy to have you join us uh, here for the first time. And for those who are coming back, a warm welcome. Um, and thanks for tuning in uh, again. I'm your host, Dr. Pavel Buchkovich. I'm the Chief Operating Officer and VP of Scientific and Medical Affairs at Phenotips, the world's first genomic health record system. Software and service that makes genetic professionals' workflows easy and intuitive and incorporates features such as pedigree drawing, standardized symptom capture using the human phenotype ontology, and insights such as differential diagnosis and gene suggestions. Since electronic health records aren't built for genetics, Phenotips fills in the gaps by providing a complete suite of features ideal for genetic medicine. In light of the pandemic, Phenotips has been sponsoring this speaker series. The format for the webinar will be a 45-minute presentation, followed by questions from the audience uh, until about the top of the hour. You'll be able to submit your questions through, throughout the presentation in the Q&A box. Our speaker today is Dr. John McDermott. He attained his medical degree from the University of Manchester before being appointed the first academic clinical fellow in genomic medicine working at the Macma uh, Manchester Center for Genomic Medicine. His research focuses on applications of genomics in acute and everyday healthcare setting, and he is passionate about the unique opportunities for population health research across the Manchester region and their wider applicability. Dr. McDermott was recently awarded funding by the NIHR to study impact of the world's first trial of a point of care genetic test in the acute setting. He has also been awarded several distinct distinctions uh, for outstanding contributions to research in the UK and for his translational research, including the NIHR Clinical Research Network Award and the Vienna Medal from the European Society of Human Genetics. The title of today's presentation by Dr. McDermott is Integrating Genomics into Routine Clinical Practice, Improving Outcomes and Avoiding Harm. The stage is yours. Thank you very much. Just before I start talking to myself, can you see that okay? Wonderful, very good. So thank you very much for that introduction. I'm really pleased to be here today to talk about a program of work that we've been undertaking for some time now, looking at the integration of genomics into routine clinical practice and how the integration of that data can be used to improve patient outcomes and avoid harm. A lot of our work looks at how we can apply genetics in settings outside of traditional genetic centers, how we can apply genomic data to improve outcomes outside of the context of rare disease and cancer predisposition disorders. And a lot of our work focuses around the central question, how can we apply genetics in the acute and everyday healthcare settings to improve outcomes, stratify risk and avoid harm? In the population, we know that there is significant genetic variation. We all have around 4 million single nucleotide polymorphisms compared to the so-called reference genome. Lots of that will be unrelated to human health. Some may be related to predisposition to rare disease or, as I said, cancer predisposition disorders. But some may be related to your chance of developing 
common disease, or it may be related to your metabolism of certain medicines. And the question is, how do we use knowledge of that genetic variation and apply it in clinical practice to improve patient outcomes? And we've split that translational journey up into four distinct areas. Initially, you need to be able to determine the genotype to phenotype relationship. If you have a change in a certain gene, so let's say CYP2D6, which is related to the metabolization of codeine, you need to be able to establish what that genetic change is doing to the function of that enzyme. And once you've, you may have found a, a clinically relevant variant, but once you've done that, you need to determine the economic um, viability of testing for that genetic change in practice and understand the patient and public acceptability of performing that testing. And after that, you then need to ensure you have the technological solutions to ensure that that genetic data is, in, is available at the right time. So you may have found a really clinically relevant genetic variant. It may be economically viable to test for it. And you may have developed either a really neat point of care test or an informatic solution to test for it. But even after all that, we need to do work putting it into clinical practice to ensure that testing for that variant or using that genetic information doesn't impact normal clinical practice. And in clinical genetics and arguably medicine more generally, we're very good at this end of the spectrum. We're very good at establishing those genotype to phenotype relationships. What a lot of our work focuses around are those next steps. How we take those clinically relevant genetic variants and move that into clinical practice to tangibly improve patient outcomes. And a lot of that is related to this concept of pharmacogenetics, which is the study of variation in DNA sequence as related to drug response. Now the concept that patients respond differently to different medications is by no means new. It's been recognized for years and it's a frequent and often frustrating clinical phenomenon that some patients will respond entirely appropriately to medications, others may get no response, and others may develop significant adverse drug reactions. But the idea that people respond differently to different compounds is arguably one of the oldest observations in history. This is a 16th century French manuscript and it shows Pythagoras turning away from a field of fava beans. Now, Pythagoras and the Pythagorean Brotherhood were not allowed to eat fava beans. They were banned from doing that. And that was because Pythagoras observed someone eat fava beans and the next day they got very, very unwell and died. So it was determined that fava beans must contain evil spirits. And the story goes that Pythagoras actually died whilst escaping from a town. He was being chased. The escape was going well. And then he came across a field of fava beans, refused to cross and was caught. And that idea that fava beans were evil has gone down throughout antiquity. And the priests of Jupiter in Rome similarly weren't allowed to eat fava beans. And even to this day, there's remnants of that idea. So this is the Setsuban festival in Japan and fava beans are cast out of the house to cast off evil spirits. Now, probably what we could argue, and it's a nice story, is that what Pythagoras had actually seen was an individual with G6PD deficiency. Now, G6PD is an enzyme which participates in the pentose uh, phosphate pathway in red cells. And individuals with reduced activity of G6PD, they have reduced levels of glutathione. And glutathione is particularly important as it protects red cells from oxidative damage. 
in individuals who have G6PD deficiency, when they're exposed to certain foods like fava beans or certain medications that increase the levels of these oxidative species, it can precipitate hemolysis and non-immune hemolytic anemia. So perhaps that's what Pythagoras had identified. So a lot of our work is based around this area. When you give a medication to an individual, what you want to happen is that they have an appropriate response to that medication and they don't develop an adverse drug reaction. We know some people will develop adverse drug reactions or ADRs. Some individuals will have a poor response. Put simply, the aim of our work in the context of pharmacogenetics is to increase the number of people in that middle group and decrease the number of people in the groups to either side. And on an individual and on a population level, that will have a significant impact, both for that person and in the healthcare setting. But despite extensive evidence for multiple drug gene pairs, there's a translational gap. There are 440 gene drug pairs with prescribing evidence in the literature. And 26 of those gene drug pairs have explicit pharmacogenetic guidelines written by the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium. Now, in the United Kingdom, only four of those gene drug pairs have reached clinical practice. So there is clearly a significant translational gap. And a lot of our work and a lot of what I'll be talking about today is how we can address that translational gap and address those issues. So to put a structure to what I'm going to speak about, I'm going to talk about three distinct case presentations, if you will, three distinct projects that I'm particularly passionate about and we're working on at the moment. The first of these is the PALO study, and this really encompasses all of this translational pathway taking knowledge of a genotype to phenotype relationship, a particular genetic variant, and putting it into clinical practice. So PALO stands for the pharmacogenetics to avoid the loss of hearing, and it's centered around aminoglycoside antibiotics. Now, aminoglycoside antibiotics are commonly prescribed around the world. They're very, very cheap, and they're very, very effective. They've been prescribed for years. This is a photo of Selman Waxman, who discovered um, streptomycin in 1943. And because of the structure of the antibiotic, he named it an aminoglycoside. And since then, a myriad of different aminoglycosides have been identified, both synthetic and non-synthetic. The most commonly used is probably gentamicin, which many of you may be familiar with. And this is really what I'm gonna focus on here today. Because they've been used for so very long, the side effect profile is well known. If I were to give any of you listening today a large dose of aminoglycoside antibiotics over a protracted period of time, you probably develop an element of hearing loss, of ototoxicity. It's one of the well-recognized side effects. However, in the latter part of the 20th century, it was recognized that certain individuals and certain families appear to have a predisposition towards this side effect, whereby just a single dose of aminoglycoside antibiotic was enough to cause a profound and irreversible hearing loss, specifically or particularly in the neonatal period. And you can see from this pedigree that this appears to be inherited in an extranuclear inheritance fashion or a mitochondrial inheritance fashion. And it was in 1993 that a paper by Presantatal demonstrated that all of these individuals carried the same genetic change in a mitochondrial gene called RNR1. 
just give a bit of background on aminoglycoside antibiotics. So this is a very uh, simplistic schematic of a bacterial cell. Bacterial cells contain a 30S ribosomal subunit, and within that, there's a 16S RA subunit. This is the protein coding machinery of the cell. Now, it's the 16S RA subunit that aminoglycosides bind to. They cause a misreading of the protein transcript, truncation of the proteins, and ultimately that can lead to cell death. Now, eukaryotic cells we don't have a 16S subunit, we've got this 12S RNA subunit. And this is what's encoded for by the R and R1 gene. And at position 1555, in the vast majority of individuals, so 499 at 500, we have an adenine nucleotide. In these individuals, in, this families, in these families that are predisposed to aminoglycoside-induced hearing loss, there's a single nucleotide polymorphism at this position where the adenine nucleotide is substituted for a guanine nucleotide. This changes the conformation of our 12S RNA subunit, so it looks more like the bacterial 16S subunit. So when you give aminoglycosides, they can more readily bind, causing damage to the cell. And for a still relatively unclear reason, this has a particularly profound effect in the inner ear hair cells, which is why you develop ototoxicity. And this is present in one in 500 individuals. Now, the clinical relevance of this is, is relatively clear. And there's cohorts of patients that receive large doses of aminoglycosides. So in the UK, in certain centres, when a child is diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, we know that at some point they're likely to receive aminoglycoside antibiotics. So once they've received their diagnosis of CF, we can then test them for the RNR1 variant they'll probably only need antibiotics months or years later. So you can use standard genetic testing approaches. We use pyrosequencing. It takes about two to three weeks to get a result, but that's fine. There's no acute time pressure. But there's another cohort of patients where aminoglycosides are widely used, and that's in the context of neonatal sepsis. In the UK and lots of places around the world, the guidelines for um, antibiotic therapy in the context of neonatal sepsis is that they should receive an aminoglycoside antibiotic, gentamicin, and a beta-lactam, so penicillin. The problem is these children have just been born and you don't have time to perform the genetic testing as you need to deliver antibiotics, ideally within the hour. And this is a clinically significant problem at scale. In the UK alone, there's approximately 90,000 admissions to the neonatal intensive care unit. Based on a population prevalence of one in 500, that's around 180 babies that are at risk of aminoglycoside-induced ototoxicity. And this is just in the UK. Around the world, that, popular, that um, issue is magnified greatly. So a few years ago, we asked ourselves the question, could we develop a test which could deliver a clinically relevant result in a clinically relevant timeframe? We wanted it to be point of care, cost effective and acceptable to stakeholders. And that's where the Palo project was born from. To do this, we partnered with a uh, company which was spin out from the University of Manchester called GeneDrive. We developed a two stage testing technique. Initially, we amplified our region of interest using LAMP PCR, which is an isothermal PCR process. And then to genotype, we utilized melt curve analysis. To do this, we created a probe that was perfectly bound to our mutant allele and imperfectly bound to our wild type allele. As you 
heat that reaction up because the wild type allele is less perfectly bound. You get detachment and fluorescence earlier because the mutant allele is perfectly bound. You get detachment and fluorescence later. And what that looks like, as you can see on this peak curve here, is you get a separation between the peaks depending on whether you're wild type or mutant. And that's how we perform the genotyping. This was all packaged into a handheld unit. This is version one of the unit. And it's taken from a cheek swab, a buccal swab from the neonate. And this is able to deliver a result comparable to gold standard, validated against control samples from around the world in approximately 25 minutes. So we've gone from two to three weeks to 25 minutes. So it's potentially paradigm changing. You can perform genetic testing in that acute context. But as I explained before, you still need to implement that technology because what we're saying is we want people to do genetic testing in one of the most stressful environments you could imagine. We need to know if we're going to do that, is it going to disrupt normal practice? Is it even possible? Will tests be missed and how will the data be used? And that's where Palo was born from. This was an NAHR funded study through the eye for eye scheme. The principle of the work was that when babies are admitted to the neonatal intensive care unit, already they have a number of swabs taken looking for different infections. We were simply adding on our swabs to that admission process. The nurse would begin the assay, normal practice would continue. And what we wanted to measure was that, was the result available to practice informed antibiotic prescribing? If they were a wild type, they could receive standard of care. If they were mutant, if they contained the 1555 A to G variant, then they'd be prescribed an alternative yet equally effective antibiotic. And so we installed a number of units on both trusts and the trial ran at the two trusts we were running the project at, and the trial ran for 10 months. And critically, the results were presented in an incredibly simplistic binary fashion. What we need to remember is that this is being performed by individuals who have relatively limited or, or no laboratory experience and no experience in genetics. So we need to make sure that this, this information can be interpreted without that background knowledge. And so you either have the result detected or not detected. And then there were schemas and um, guidelines which you followed thereafter. So it was a two year project. And I just want to highlight a very specific aspect of the protocol development, which was incredibly eye opening for us and will be really important for us and hopefully other acute trials in genetics as we go forward. We were meant to start the implementation at the beginning of year two, but there was a significant delay. And this was related to the ethical application. So our approach to the ethics of this project and consenting for this project was somewhat complicated by the fact that gold standard consenting process would be a prospective consent. You'd approach the families and discuss the trial and get that informed consent. The problem here is that you have a sick baby, you have a potentially sick mother, and you need to do this test within the hour. So that standard process of consenting just wasn't possible. One argument was that you could do retrospective consent so that you go back to everyone after the um, swab had been performed at a more calm time, talk to them about the study at that stage. But we argued that at that point, the test had already been done. And to go back and speak to every single individual who'd been admitted was A, quite complicated, B, 
quite time consuming and C, when we spoke to our patient and public representatives, not something that they were particularly interested in in the neonatal setting. So we argued for a concept that we've called opt-out consent and is somewhat of a misnomer, but the idea that individuals who were enrolled in this study, their parents would be informed via a letter in their discharge summary, and if they wanted their data withdrawing from the study, they could get in touch with us and do so. We applied to, and this would be the first time an acute genetic test had ever used this model of consenting, but we thought it was the safest way to approach and the most appropriate way to go forward. We applied to the Research Ethics Committee and we were approved. We worked with the PPI team to develop that approach and so we were very, very happy. However, about two weeks later, we received a letter and it said that, and this was from the Human Research Authority, said that it was in the opinion of the HRA that our methodology was in breach of the Human Tissue Act. And at the end of the letter, it said the penalty for this is an offence uh, of a prison, for this offence is a prison sentence for up to three years, a fine or both, which is not a letter that you want to receive. And for those of you not in the UK or aren't aware, the um, Human Tissue Act was written in the wake of the Alder Hay scandal or the uh, organ retention scandal. And it really looks at how you store and how you deal with human tissue and the consenting process you need to go through to store um, to store those tissues. And so the specific legislation that we fell foul of, and I'm not going to go into too much detail on this, was that we were potentially committing an offence if we had bodily material and we were um, going to analyse that material without qualifying consent. And critically, the Human Tissue Authority, the Human Tissue Act, did not accept that opt-out consent was qualifying. Now, we went through a very long process to craft an argument which would allow us to perform this work. And we partnered with um, a professor of medical ethics called Margot Brazier, who was involved in the initial writing and uh, the process of drafting the Human Tissue Act. Now, the reason I want to stress this is that work like this as, as geneticists, by its very nature, has to be multi multidisciplinary. And by working uh, with Professor Brazier, we were able to craft that argument. I'm not going to go into the details of that argument, but if anyone is interested in reading more about it, interested in the ethical legal aspects of this work, we've written a roundtable commentary um, in the Journal of Medical Ethics where this was discussed in detail. But in summary, we were able to perform this work and it's created a precedent for work like this going forward. And it's something that I was just keen to highlight as hopefully it will be useful for researchers in the future who don't have to go through this process like we did. So I'm very happy. So the, the trial um, finished towards the end of last year and we're analyzing the data at the moment. So I'm very happy to share some early data with you. So over the course of the study, 751 babies were recruited over two sites. Three of those individuals, three of those babies were shown to carry the M1-1555 variant and proven with gold standard confirmed against gold standard sequencing. None of those individuals who test pos tested positive went on to receive gentamicin. That's, so that's potentially three individuals who've avoided aminoglycoside induced hearing loss. So already we're really happy with the outcomes of this work. 81% of all admissions across two sites were successfully tested. 
those individuals who weren't successfully tested, there were some reasons why certain tests were missed and then some issues with test fails, which have now hopefully been improved. And then, as I said at the beginning, we were really interested in seeing how the integration of this test into clinical practice influenced clinical timings. Yes, we could test for the variant, but was it disrupting all other aspects of the care pathway? And very happy to say that it doesn't look like it was. The median time to the swab was six minutes, showing that it's very much being ingrained and integrated within that admission process. And we measured the time to antibiotics before we started the trial, which was around 56 minutes. And critically, during the trial, the time to antibiotics was 56.43 minutes. So that is equivalent to pre-genotyping uh, to before the trial. So integrating this rapid point of care test into such an acute setting does not appear to be affecting other areas of clinical practice, which was the thing that we really, really wanted to demonstrate. So it's not only that the test is viable, it's useful, but it's not disrupting other parts of clinical care. So we've developed an assay which can provide a clinically relevant result in a clinically relevant time frame. It's handheld, it's point of care, it takes a buccal swab, and it can be used by non-experts without a cold chain. The assay has the potential to avoid aminoglycoside-induced hearing loss in up to 180 babies in the UK every year, but there's lots of other applications of this um, system, both in other countries and also in other clinical contexts as well, where aminoglycosides are used. And what's really interesting from, from my perspective is that genetic technology can be utilised in the acute setting without disrupting normal clinical practice. And it creates a novel ethical framework for undertaking genetic research in the acute setting. And actually, you can potentially take this approach, this type of technology, and utilise it in different settings. And I'll come on to that in just a few moments. So what we've talked about there is a scenario, a, a particular study, where we're trying to avoid an adverse drug reaction, a significant adverse drug reaction. What I want to focus on now is the, context, the concept of CYP2C19 and clopidogrel therapy. And this is related, rather than adverse drug reactions, to poor response to medicines. So clopidogrel, for, for those of you who might not know, is a really commonly used antiplatelet medicine. It's used very, very commonly around the world. It's one of the most prescribed medicines in the United Kingdom, and it's given post-cardiac um, stenting, it's given for peripheral vascular disease, and it's given for endovascular stenting, and it's given after an individual has had an ischemic stroke. But it's not an active medicine. Like many medicines, it needs to be activated by enzymes in the body. So clopidogrel is absorbed, first of all, into the intestinal cells and transported to the liver. And there it's converted by enzymes within the P450 cytochrome system. And so it can become its active metabolite and have its desired effect. And one of the key players in this activation process is CYP2C19. Now CYP2C19 is a highly polymorphic enzyme. There's lots of variability within the population. And what you can see here is a table from the CPIC guidelines. And it's very important at this point that I just explained that the language, the nomenclature we use in pharmacogenetics is somewhat different from the language that's used in other areas of genetics. So what you can see here is the star allele format. So star two to star eight. And each star allele 
denotes a variation that impacts the activity of that enzyme. So you've got star two to star eight, which denotes loss of function variance, so the enzyme doesn't work as effectively. And then you've got a star 17 variant, which is hypothesized, although there's some debate, can actually increase activity of the CYP2C19 enzyme. And critically, the language we deal with in pharmacogenetics is that you combine, because you have two copies of, of the CYP2C19 gene, you combine your star alleles to establish a metabolizer phenotype. And this is all taken from the clinical pharmacogenetics for implementation. Um, clinical implementation pharmacogenetics consortium, sorry. And so you combine your star alleles. And so if you carry a, a star two, star two allele, you're a poor metabolizer. If you carry a star one, which is wild type, and then another loss of function allele, you're an intermediate metabolizer. Now, why am I telling you this? Because it's clinically important. There's lots of evidence showing that if you're a loss of um, function allele carrier, then you're far more likely have worse outcomes if you're prescribed clopidogrel. So this is a paper taken, this is a figure taken from the Tornio et al paper from 2018 that looks at recurrent, uh, recurrent ischemic events in the stroke population. And what you can see here is that individuals who carry a loss of function variant in CYP2C19 are far more likely to go on and develop further ischemic events. And that's been replicated in carotid artery stenting and endovascular stenting as well. And we're doing some work at the moment, reanalyzing a large stroke cohort to see whether that data holds up in a, in a very large stroke co cohort taken from the UK and Europe. But clopidogrel traditionally was used far more in the context of cardiovascular disease. That all changed from the, when the PLATO trial was published in 2009. And the PLATO trial was an RCT which compared ticagrelor, so a new type of antiplatelet, against clopidogrel. And what that showed was that individuals prescribed ticagrelor had better outcomes than those prescribed clopidogrel. Ticagrelor is more expensive and there's an increased bleeding risk. But because ticagrelor was shown to be superior, that very much changed the prescribing behavior of, of cardiologists for individuals after they've had a cardiac stent. However, there was a paper published a few years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a, a really nice paper. And if anyone's interested in this area, I'd very much encourage you to read it, looking at a genotype guided strategy for oral antiplatelets post um, primary PCI. And what they did was a really nice trial design where they looked at, they had a standard therapy group. So anyone coming in would receive standard therapy, which uh, for argument's sake was, was ticagrelor. But then they had the other arm where they were genotyped and individuals who were carried a loss of function allele, so may not metabolize clopidogrel effectively, were prescribed ticagrelor. Those that were wild type were given clopidogrel. So if you look at the, um, the proportion of patients they had and the genotypes, around 70% were, were wild type they were given ticagrelor, but 30% of individuals within the arm were prescribed clopidogrel. So if the PLATO data were to hold true, you'd expect that the um, genotype guided arm, because 30% are re receiving clopidogrel, should do worse. Now, what we actually saw was that there was no significant difference between your genotype guided group and your standard therapy group. So clopidogrel and ticagrelor 
were equally effective, providing you could metabolize clopidogrel effectively. And with regard to bleeding outcomes, you were far more likely, or you were more likely to bleed when you were given ticagrelor rather than being in the genotype guided group. And this is a really important finding because it shows that genotype guided therapy was non-inferior and had a reduced bleeding risk. So by implementing genotype guided therapy, you can potentially have a similar outcome with a less expensive medication and less risk of adverse events. And a number of meta-analyses has been published since, basically reproducing these findings and showing that if you metabolize if you metabolize clopidogrel effectively and you have a normal CYP2C19 function, then clopidogrel is just as effective as ticagrelor, which is a really interesting finding. So I've given you two examples so far. We've talked about aminoglycoside-induced ototoxicity, and we've talked about clopidogrel therapy. But actually, certainly in the UK and in lots of countries around the world and in most centers in the US, this isn't actually being used in clinical practice at the moment. And why is that? There was a great article published by Dan Roden a few years ago when the, um, the New England Journal paper on CYP2C19 genotyping came out, basically making the case that we have all this data, why aren't we putting it into clinical practice? And that's likely because of some of the barriers we've already discussed. And I think one of the issues is around how you make sure that clinicians have that genetic data at the right time. They have that at their fingertips, so they can use that information. Because certainly in the UK, there's no clear routes to actually performing that testing. And that data certainly is included within individuals' medical records. So I want to give you an example. We worked with our stroke colleagues a few years ago, asking the question, well, if we could generate USIP2C19 genotype, could potentially use that to influence um, antiplatelet therapy. And we said, okay, well, we can probably get you a result within around 10 to 14 days, because that's the type of technology that we have at the moment, and that's the pathway we can create. The answer we got was that in the context of minor strokes or transient ischemic attacks, the evidence is coming out that if you can get an individual on their optimal antiplatelet, so clopidogrel, within 48 hours, that may improve outcomes. So they wanted the answer far quicker not at the 10 to 14 days that we could give it to them in. So what are our options here? Well, one option is we can do what we've already done. We can create a point of care test and we've received some funding from the Wellcome Trust a few years ago and we've developed a prototype system which can perform CYP2C19 genotyping in a rapid time frame. And I'm not gonna linger on this because it's very similar to what we've spoken about already, but you can see nice separation of the um, main star alleles with regards to CYP2C19. And we've developed a prototype assay which can call a CYP2C19 genotype in approximately 40 minutes. This is very much in the kind of wet lab stage at the moment and more work needs to be done, but we think it's a viable approach and it's got perfect concordance to gold standard in our uh, laboratory assays. And we think it's a major advancement over existing point of care tests because there's no cold chain. And um, we know that it can detect 99% of the world's population with regards to their CYP2C19 genotype, because these are by far and away the most common uh, loss of function alleles in the population. And then we worked with health economists to say, well, if we did implement this, what would be the potential benefits of that? 
and we created a uh, Markov model that um, suggests that if utilized, if implemented in the context of stroke therapy, then it could generate a net benefit of 0.13 uh, quality adjusted life years and a monetary benefit of uh, nearly two, well, over two and a half thousand pounds. So even though this test has a cost attached to it, you could prevent further strokes by implementing this so it would have a net benefit to the public purse. There's obviously significant uncertainty in this current model and more work needs to be done, but based on the evidence that we have, applying CYP2C19 genotyping in one way or another could potentially save millions of pounds a year in healthcare costs for the NHS. So this is the type of important data that we feel we need to generate to allow implementation to take place. So one option is that you can do this um, uh, retrospective genotyping or this kind of reactive genotyping, if you will, at the time of presentation. The other option is that you can utilize a pharmacogenetic passport strategy. The idea that this data is already part of an individual's medical records. You don't need to genotype a person every time they come into hospital if it's already been done in the community. And the benefit of that is that you can have data linked to multiple drug gene pairs, not simply the one that you're testing for at that point in time. And that's very relevant in, in stroke therapy, for example, because these patients are likely not only to be on clopidogrel, but also proton pump inhibitors, and they're likely to be on statins, all of which have pharmacogenetic um, guidelines made for them. So that's the last bit that I want to touch on just here, which is very much thinking about the future and how we implement pharmacogenetics in the UK and how it's already being done in some other centres around the world. So this is an example of one of the systems that we use. We use the uh, Gina system as one of our approaches for genotyping. Um, and this pumps out raw variant data, which we spend a lot of our time looking at in genetics. But we want to make sure that this data is available and useful in any given prescribing moment to a clinician who may not be expert in genetics. And that prescribing moment may be five days after the test has been performed, but it may also be five years or 10 years after that's been performed. So how do you make sure that data, which is relevant throughout an individual's life, continues to be relevant going forward? And this is where this concept of the pharmacogenetic passport comes in. And to do this, we've created a tool and CPIC have really good API um, approaches for mining their data set. So this is a CYP2C19 genotype guideline, and they have two tables within most articles. They have a table which converts your, your genotype to phenotype, um, and they have a, based on that phenotype, how you should prescribe. So what you can see here is that if you're a poor metabolizer, you could consider an alternative antiplatelet therapy. So what we've done is we've mined those data sets and created a tool which converts that raw variant data into metabolizer phenotypes. And then the prescriber doesn't need to search for a particular gene. They don't need to search for a um, particular metabolizer phenotype. They just search for the drug. The system then knows to query the relevant metabolizer phenotype and give targeted prescribing advice. And that would look something like this. You search for your patient and then you search for your drug of interest and you get very tailored, very specific um, dosing or, or guidelines, which hopefully will be integrated within electronic patient records. We're very aware that we don't want to simply 
gives someone another tool to use, we want it to be part of existing electronic patient records. And you can do this for many different medications going forward. So this is already being done in centres around the world. So Vanderbilt, St. Jude's, there's a lot of Dutch group who are doing excellent work on this. And it's something that we think would be beneficial to adapt in the UK going forward. Now, in the UK, we have a really robust testing infrastructure already. We run on a genomic laboratory hub model in England specifically. And there's been talk for a number of years around pharmacogenomics becoming a new normal for the National Health Service. But yet, that's not happened yet. There's clearly those still barriers to implementation. And although we have a robust testing strategy, we have the laboratories to do the tests, the actual implementation side of things, thinking how clinicians are going to use that data, is something we feel that hasn't been readily explored as much as it should. And hopefully over the next few years, that's what we'll do more of. And one of the questions that I just want to finish on that kind of keeps me up at night is if we are going to do this, if we are going to take these large data sets from patients and include them and integrate them within medical records, how do we handle data sets like this? So they remain useful, they remain accessible, but we maintain the trust of the public. And one of the issues that the NHS have had in the past um, is issues with these big data projects. So this is from um, a few years ago. You can see a number of headlines in our papers talking about care.data. And care.data was aimed to extract patient data from, from GP records. And ultimately they wanted it to be used to improve patient care. But because of the way it was across because of the discussions around it and because patients didn't feel as if it was in their interests it failed and so that's something we want to avoid we need to think about how we maintain this security and slightly blue sky thinking but i think it's always good to finish on things like that and um, we're exploring at the moment the idea of using blockchain based approaches to control this data set and we have a phd student working on this at the moment, utilizing smart contracts, which are stored on the blockchain, on the ledger. And the idea is that a patient has control over how this data is utilized. They give access to specific clinicians to inform their prescriptions, or maybe if they want to do research, but this would provide some security for patients and hopefully make them feel reassured. Now, I'm not saying this is specifically the route that we're going to use, but I think we need to explore how we're going to explore and, and keep patient um, data safe going forward. And we need to ensure that we have that patient buy-in. So I think I've talked for a good 40 minutes now. Um, I'm really pleased to have kind of covered these few topics. And I, I, I'm very passionate about the area because I fundamentally believe that the integration of genomic data within everyday healthcare can be used to predict risk, improve safety, and improve the efficacy of medications. It's a really interesting area to work in because as well as getting to explore the really interesting science and the, the delivery of that science, there's also the ethical legal implications that I've touched on that we get to think about and work with colleagues. There's the technical challenges, not simply related to the um, technology, but related to the, the trial design, which is really interesting. And then from a personal perspective, if there's any genetic counselors out there or clinical geneticists, there's the question about, well, what is the role of the clinical genetics team 
in this area going forward. I am first and foremost a clinical geneticist. So what is our role? Is it around counselling and interpretation of that data or will we be more integrated into uh, the delivery of this service on a day to day basis? So thank you very much all for listening. We've worked with a, a huge range of colleagues, both in the UK and internationally, who I'm um, very grateful to and um, to all our funders who supported this work. And I'm happy to answer any questions. And if anyone has any questions by email, I'd be more than happy to, um, to speak with them. So thank you very much. Thank you for that uh, insightful presentation. Uh, for those of you who haven't uh, yet input your questions into the question answer box, please do so now and we'll, uh, we'll try to get it uh, answered for you uh, over the next uh, 15 minutes or so. Um, the the LAMP PCR belt curve analysis, uh, you know, from my perspective, is actually a very elegant solution to the uh, aminoglycoside autotoxicity issue that you, uh, that you described. Is the PALO protocol currently uh, being used only within Manchester? And if so, what are the prospects of it being used across the UK uh, or beyond? Mm. So, um... As it was a research trial at first, and uh, we finished that back in October. We hopefully now have um, a funding avenue to do the next stage of that work, which is where we expand it out a little bit more. There were two centres where it was performed, so Manchester and Liverpool. But what we're interested about is the kind of how you turn that from a, a research trial, which it, it really was, into a standard of care. And a lot of that is around ensuring that you have effective guidelines in place and um, so the MHRA which is the medicines regulatory agency in the UK um, towards the end of last year published guidelines saying basically making people aware of this particular variant um, and CPIC with just finished uh, writing and hopefully we'll publish soon the guidelines for aminoglycoside induced autotoxicity and RNR1 variants so Basically, I think having those structures in place, those guidelines that clinicians can follow will be really important to actually putting that into clinical practice. We will be doing more work, expanding it out to other centers and basically monitoring the clinical use of that. But it's going to go from a research trial to actually being clinical practice. And a lot of that will come to the, the company who's developed the test and, and we'll be monitoring it as we go forward. So it's that really interesting interface between research and actually now it should become hopefully clinical practice. Thank you for that. Um, we have a few questions coming from the audience. Um, uh, somebody wrote, thank you for the inspiring talk. What are the main barriers for implementing this faster? Um, and, yeah. and presumably, I guess that could be expanded towards sort of what are the, what are the next or largest limitations or roadblocks for wider utilization of pharmacogenetics generally and and where do you think the biggest improvements would be for utility of pharmacogenetics um, yeah so um i think just to give some background to that question because it's a for me the key question in this area in that there are such good guidelines there's such good data there around the relevance of pharmacogenetics in clinical practice we know that there's a significant swathe of the population who just aren't going to respond to their medications appropriately and yet we're not putting it into clinical practice so clearly there are barriers there and it'll be different in it'll be different in every country there'll be slight nuances to, to, to why it's not happening to my mind 
for, certainly from our practice, there's two key things, one of which I've covered already, which is around the awareness and integration of these genetic tests within guidelines. So as soon as, so in the UK, there are four genetic tests which are in clinical practice. So the most recent is uh, the fluoropyrimidine chemotherapy agents and DPYD gene changes. Um, and about 1% of the population are predisposed to severe uh, mild suppression because they carry a change in this gene. That is now done as standard in all patients receiving these chemotherapy agents because it's been mandated by guidelines. And actually, that's what we need to kind of work towards and think, where are the key guidelines that we need to write where it's relevant to write them? So creating that support for clinicians about what you do if you find these genetic changes and when you should be do the doing the genetic testing, that's number one. The other big issue, which I kind of uh, talked about throughout the presentation, is, is the technological solutions to how you ensure that data is available at the right point in time. And some of that will be around rapid genetic testing. I think a lot of that will be around technological and informatic solutions to ensure that that genomic data can be integrated effectively within a patient's care records. And it can seamlessly, hopefully, um, interact with systems. So EPR systems like um, Epic and EMIS. So when you go to prescribe, you get those notifications and you don't need the kind of constant reinterpretation and that active thought process about, well, what do I do now? Now I know there are intermediate metabolizer for CYP2D6. It has to be part of these of these systems. And I think that the, the big, to, to answer your final bit of your question, the, the big opportunities, I think, looking forward, will obviously be around those individuals who polypharmacy, so they're on lots of different medications, on hopefully providing some abilities to rationalize those medications and make sure they're on agents that work. I think CYP2C19 and clopidogrel therapy is going to be one of the kind of big ones next. I know CPIC are kind of updating their guidelines on that. And it's so widely prescribed that um, I'd like to see testing coming out for that um, in the near future. More generally, about um, genomics within healthcare records beyond pharmacogenetics, there's other opportunities for how you use genetic data to potentially predict risk of common disease. You might have heard lots of people talking about polygenic risk with cardiovascular disease. You can see a world where that's integrated within healthcare records and advanced decision analytical tools when you're um, coming up with differential diagnoses in the ED or in different clinical settings. So lots of opportunities going forward and hopefully we'll see a big expansion in this area. Do you think that pharmacogenetic testing will ever have a place in population screening programs, for example, newborn screening? So I think that's a really good question and kind of an ethically charged question. I think that um, there will be a role or there is an argument to be made for widespread pharmacogenetic testing. There's an argument about when you do that. So we're hopefully going to engage in some work over the next few years, asking the question, at what point in time in an individual's life, if we were to do this prospective screening, would you do it? So is it related to your age? Is it simply as you get older, statistically, you're more likely to be on medication. So there's a cutoff when you could have it. Or is it related to when you're coded with certain diseases or disorders, or 
maybe it should just be based on when you're prescribed a certain amount of medicines. Now, obviously, all those examples are related to adulthood. It's a completely separate question about whether you're testing a child. It's something that certainly at the moment I'm not an advocate for. Um, I would say that there is an argument to be made for doing it at a later stage in life, but obviously things change over time, discussions change over time, and I'm sure it's something that will be discussed as we go forward, but it's not something that I am kind of actively advocating for at the moment. I think there's likely to be a point in adulthood where it becomes most suitable. How, how is all of the data updated and at what interval? Um, yeah, so I suppose in, in, in truth, the answer is at the moment, certainly in our practice in the UK, with regard to if you, so that there is no service, so at the moment it's not updated, I suppose. If you mean the data with regard to the guidelines potentially, so see I'm not sure if it's, Yeah, I'm not sure if it's guidelines or related to, uh, related with the uh, drug gene interactions. Yeah, so, so I suppose the guidelines are iterated every few years as new information comes out. And the power of the CPIC API is that that's updated. And so if you've set up your systems correctly, you can basically push out the new data to your general practitioner or your patient. And you can say, oh, the information has changed. So your, your dosing guidelines may have changed. So that's very possible. With regard to the test that you do, so we take a genetic test of someone in, let's say, uh, 2022, and then we tested them for maybe 100 different variants in, in 20 genes. It may be that down the line, a new gene is discovered, which is relevant to, to pharmacogenetics or to prescription of a common medication. There's, there's no real kind of obvious plan for how you update that person's uh, genetic test. And that's a, that's a common problem in genetics generally, even in rare disease and cancer predisposition disorders, but it's something we, we need to think about. But with regards to those prescribing guidelines, um, they're updated regularly and you can update your, um, your guidelines and push out those APIs uh, yeah, to update your guidelines. Um, sort of going back to the PALO study, um, of the 81% of patients you said successfully tested, did the patients whose, whose tests weren't successful, did they end up receiving a standard of care, uh, the, uh, the gentamicin or genetic? Yeah, so, yeah, so, I mean, some of them, some of those, about half of them weren't receiving aminoglycosides of those patients and, and, and the rest of them did go on to receive standard of care. We've subsequently, so we're going to release hopefully the paper in a, in a few months time. Um, but the, we genotyped every single patient using gold standards um, techniques. And there, were, there was no one missed, if you will, with a, who was positive for the 1555 A to G variant. And there were no, critically, there were no false negatives. So it's not like we identified patients who were negative using the point of care test and they eventually turned out to be positive. So there was no one on the trial who had the variant who went on to receive gentamicin. Mm. So we're pleased with that outcome. Now, obviously there's improvements to be made to the system, which will be partly the, the system itself, which have been made and are being made. And we're very happy with that, but also the use of the system. I, I think what I always try to put across is that this is being used. It was used 24 hours a day, seven days a week for basically 
10 months it was being used in the middle of the night by people who were kind of i mean i've been on nights who are a bit sleep deprived and there, there will be issues with the setup and they kind of improved over time so it can't just be about the test it's all about the integration of that test within clinical practice we have uh, another question from the audience here um, how do you determine phasing of the star alleles if you are not testing trios? So I think that's a, that's a really good question. The answer is that um, it's very it's somewhat difficult to do that. There's discussions around, so a lot of the Dutch groups are looking at utilizing uh, long read sequencing at the moment to, to support with that to an extent, um, but it's, it, 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 it's difficult. Um, and yeah, that's probably the best answer I can give for that at the moment. Uh, another question here is, what is the current status of DPYD screening for FU-based therapy? I presume it's for aerosol-based therapy in cancer patients in the UK. So in the um, UK, it's now quite, it's now widespread, it's now standard, or should be kind of standard practice. So, um, the testing is done in each genomic laboratory hub in England and um, individuals receiving five of you should be having DPYD screening. Now, it's um, we're in the early days of the project and it's kind of rolling out at the moment. So um, there's a lot of work going on as part of the um, GMSA, the Genomic Medicines uh, service alliance where there'll be some funding to, to look at the uptake of that and how you can improve and increase uptake um, but by the kind of early data that's coming through the laboratory it's the uptake is significant i think part of that is to do with the guidelines that have been written um we have another question here um also saying thank you for an amazing presentation what is the best way to motivate non-specialists to adopt uh, PGX practices and promote learning of the new practice? Yeah, that's a, I think, really good question and something that I spend a, a huge amount of my time doing, kind of trying to be some kind of an evangelicalist for um, pharmacogenetics. I think finding a, an example within pharmacogenetics that is relevant to that specialty. So if I give you an example, so CYP2C19 and, and clopidogrel therapy, is that example. I've worked with cardiologists, I've worked with stroke physicians, I've worked with vascular surgeons. The approach that I've taken, and we have really good relationships with all of them, the approach I've taken to speaking about it with them is to put it in their clinical context. So you can improve surgical outcomes potentially by using CYP2C19 genotyping. You can improve or prevent further strokes by using CYP2C19 genotyping. And finding that, that buy-in that's relevant to them, I think is, is the way to go. Because as a specialty, pharmacogenetics is so broad and it will have tentacles in to lots of different um, specialties and it will be relevant to the vast majority of them. So finding that hook, that, that story, if you will, is I think hopefully what captures people's attention and gets them really interested in it. That's, that's, a, <clears throat> that's a good answer. We have one more question. And actually, this is a very interesting one, uh, sort of talking about the, the economics aspect. Do you have any idea of the cost effectiveness of the M 
1555A to G point of care testing, the cost of testing 500 subjects to identify one mutation against, against the savings of preventing one case from acquiring deafness? Yeah, so that's a, again, that's a very, very good question. Um, we have, and they've been released as part of the payload data set, we've had a health economist as part of our team, and they've looked at the kind of modeling of the cost of the test, which they vary depending on what the company wants to charge, and the cost of integration based on all of the costs that are associated with early onset prelingual deafness are enormous. And we've worked with ENT surgeons, we've worked with audiologists, and actually the costs associated with that are so significant that it's justifiable to do that testing as we've kind of described. I think that the, the example where it, that, that health economic argument falls down is, so some people say, well, why wouldn't you just test the mothers before they give birth? Because the mitochondrial variant, you know they're going to have that. So why don't you just test every pregnant mother? Then the economic rationale falls down. But in a cohort where the vast majority are receiving amino glycosides and they're in the neonatal period, they're prelingual, that's the population that you can target. And I, I don't have the kind of numbers to hand, but it will kind of release it as part of the data set. But we, on, we, were, we only got the work funded because we crafted that kind of health economic right. rationale. Um, and that's why it is so important to work with health economists, to work with psychologists, to work with different specialists, because that's going to be how we translate genomics into clinical practice by working as a team and, and working with different colleagues. Yeah, that's a, that's a good answer to a, to a tough question. Um, thank you, you know, thank you once again for, for presenting for us today. Um, I'll just do a little bit of housekeeping at the end before we, uh, before we wrap up. Um, once the webinar ends, you'll actually see a feedback link in your browser. So please take uh, a minute or two of your time to give us some feedback about what topics you'd be interested in seeing in upcoming episodes. You'll also receive an email uh, where you can give us feedback uh, in case you missed the link. Um, the email will also include uh, information uh, about registering for our June 22nd uh, speaker series. Uh, the title of that presentation is The Role of Phenotyping in Improving Diagnostic Outcomes, and that will be with Dr. Gabian Smedley. Um, and a link of the Phenotype Speaker Series page uh, will be there where you can sign up to receive alerts about upcoming sessions. If you've missed any past webinars and want to check them out, you can go to phenotips.com, click on the resource tab, um, and see the speaker series drop-down menu, where you'll be able to uh, see all the installments of the speaker series uh, and stream them. Um, you can also follow uh, Phenotips on Twitter or LinkedIn um, to look for updates about the speaker series. And certainly, please also follow uh, our guest today, Dr. McDermott. And um, thank you again for listening, everybody, and uh, have a nice day. Thank you. Thank you.